But last week, we considered Philemon 1 to 3. We consider this week considering Philemon 4 to 7. In these verses, Paul informs Philemon that he gives thanks for him in his prayers because Philemon's faith and love result in the refreshment for the saints in Colossae. So consider with me the following points. Paul's prayer begins with thanksgiving. Two, from thanksgiving, Paul moves to the content of his prayer. And three, Paul offers an explanation for his prayer. So we can remember these three points by just thinking of these three words. Thanksgiving, content, and explanation. Thanksgiving, content, and explanation. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word. And um, we thank you for the book of Philemon. And uh, especially today as we think, think about part of it. We thank you, our Father, that uh, you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what is herein written and help us then by your Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit as we walk in light of your Word. And we ask you this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all then, consider thanksgiving. Giving of thanks is something Paul normally does in mostly all of his epistles. Not all of them, but in most of them. For example, in Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And again, Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Like I said, most but not all of Paul's epistles indicate uh, prayers with thanksgiving for the recipients. Uh, the exceptions are 2 Corinthians, which is really a letter of consolation, and it follows on the heels of 1 Corinthians, at least that's the way it is in the canon. Galatians, he doesn't give thanks because he moves right to his point. They are departing from uh, the gospel. And in 2 Timothy, he, or 1 Timothy, I should say, he doesn't give thanks, but it's a letter of instruction. And, um, but in the rest of the epistles, he always gives thanks. Well, indicating thanks for people is not often found on our lips. Yes, Paul offered thanks he had to God. After all, God is the one to whom he prayed. However, Paul tells Philemon that he thanks God for him. Well, how often have you told your husband, your wife, your child, your parents, your employer, your school teacher, or your friend, I thank God for you? Now, I know I've done it sometimes, and probably all of us have, but we need to remember that that's something that we should, that should be kind of regular on our lips. I thank God for you. Well, except for political reasons, I think many people in our country are light on thanks and heavy on entitlement. Though white people are accused of being entitled and privileged, it's not just whites who are that way. Giving thanks for those whom God has brought into our lives is as much needed today as it was in the past. 
Of all people, Christians should be the most thankful, should we not? Take note that Paul gives thanks for Philemon before he mentions a difficult issue. He's going to write to him and request. It's kind of a forceful request, but he's going to request that Philemon receive Onesimus back, not only as a slave, but even more than that, a a brother in Christ. So he's about to um, ask him something very difficult. Now, um, some commentators believe that Paul is writing this way for rhetorical reasons. He is, uh, as it were, setting up Philemon for a difficult discussion. (laughs) Um, Well, I can't say that he's, that that isn't part of it, but that's, but that isn't part of it when it comes to other things that Paul is thankful for. For other people in other churches, I think that if that's all that Paul is doing, that he's very disingenuous. If all he's doing is using rhetoric to get his point, or make his point, then his statement that he gives thanks is really kind of meaningless. Yes. I believe that Paul was genuinely always thankful in his prayers not only for Philemon, but all of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I said, that's not the first time Paul had addressed difficult subjects. And yet he was thankful. Corinth was just full of divisions and and sinful activities, and yet he begins by thanking them, thanking God for them. Um, So... And then he thanks God for the Philippians, which he doesn't really have to deal with anything difficult. Or Ephesians, where he doesn't deal with anything difficult. So he's thankful for believers, and so should we. And that's what it teaches us, is that we should be genuinely thankful for the people God brings into our lives. Yes, we will have to deal with difficulties, but that does not mean that we should be unthankful. The Lord is so good to us through the people He brings into our lives, And we should be thankful to him for them. Now notice Paul says, uh, the way it reads is that I thank my God always when I remember you. That can be translated in a couple ways. I either, I always thank my God as I remember you or when I remember you. That's a legitimate translation. The other translation is, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Um, The difference is really subtle, but it's important. In the first translation, Paul is saying that he always gives thanks for Philemon. And if he says that in other places, it's always give thanks. Um, In the second translation, Paul is saying that he always prays. So, both of those are kind of difficult. Well, The notion of always giving thanks or always praying with thanks uh, offers all of us a stumbling block, doesn't it? You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he commands the church, pray, that's an imperative, pray without ceasing. And Christians, especially Christians in the West, and more particularly Christians in the modern world, have struggled with this. So, what does Paul mean when he says that? Always. Well, Again, there's always two interpretations. There are probably more, but these are the only two I know of. 
One commentator writes, The statement that Paul that Paul's praying occurs always is not to be taken woodenly, but is figurative, figurative of a habitual or continual attitude or activity. Well, I think I can support that scripturally. If you just read the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that that's true. Nehemiah prays whenever. you know. It's just a short prayer sometimes, like, God help me, but that's all he does. And So yeah, I could say that we, we should do that. I imagine that most of us are that way. However, that's not all the truth, is it? Another commentator writes, Many pious Jews observe times of regular prayer. Now you see that demonstrated in the book of Acts. When the apostles went to the temple at the hour of prayer. And you'll notice that when Peter's released from, or when, yeah, when he gets released, what is it in Acts chapter, I forget, um, when, when he's released from prison, the miraculous deliverance from prison, remember when the angel? Um, where did he go? He went to a house where he knew that people would be praying. How did he know they would be praying there? How did he know that they would be doing that? Well, I think maybe because there were some specific times when the church gathered for prayer. And so I think what we can learn is that Christians, you know, should sincerely practice a continual attitude of prayer, whatever that means. I'm not sure what an attitude of prayer is, but I think we find ourselves uh, praying throughout the day, don't we, without some kind of, you know, setting aside a time. We just pray like Nehemiah did. But what seems to be lacking in the church is the regular practice of set times of prayer. I remember when I first came to this church, we had a Saturday evening prayer meeting at my house. Now, I'll grant you that it was sparsely attended, but there were regulars who came. Um, I also used to have a weekly 6 a.m. prayer meeting in my office. Again, it was sparsely attended, but there were regulars who came. However, over the years, prayer days uh, were encouraged. Sometimes we had people sign up a prayer sheet where they'd sign and pray. We'd pray throughout a day. And then all of a sudden, um, things just begin to fall apart in that respect. I was even accused one time of, of trying to do the ministry in the flesh because I asked for a time of prayer and fasting. The Bible talks about prayer and fasting, but someone called me and said, you're, you're, you're working in the flesh. So I guess I was working in the flesh, but I didn't, we didn't do that too much after that. But I think that we as, as a church in America and our own congregation need to learn from our North Korean, Chinese, Asian, and Middle Eastern brothers and sisters You see, they're persecuted for their faith. And one of the things that they rely on is prayer. And so, what we need to understand is that the work of God requires reliance on God and prayer is necessary to express our utter dependence upon Him. Now, we do do that individually. I'm not suggesting that we don't, but we don't do it as a body. And when you think about it, Christ does save individuals, but what's the big focus in the Scripture? The body of Christ. The assembly. 
the people of God. You know, it's true, they're individuals. Paul even mentions them. He's even writing to one individual now. But the point is, the church is what's in view. Christ saves individuals, but those individuals are part of a body. They're part of an assembly. And um, for us to get together to pray, to pray, even, even in our culture where we don't have the danger of imprisonment, is something I think that we all need to think about and practice. Well, then that leads then to the reason that Paul offers thanks to God for Philemon. He says, It's because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, Paul has most likely heard of Philemon's love and faith from Onesimus and from others. Paul was quite familiar with the church in Colossae, of which Philemon is a participant. He also knew people from the church who were most likely, who most likely reported to him about Philemon. Not only that, Philemon is a convert of Paul's, though we don't know when or where that occurred. Paul was never in Colossae. Um, the closest he ever came to Colossae was Ephesus. However, we know that the gospel reached there through his ministry in Ephesus. I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now, um, Ephesus is about 100 miles from Colossae, but I want you to notice, it must have been that Paul preached and people heard about this and they took it to their cities and then other people maybe came up and saw Paul. But it's really interesting how the gospel spread from Ephesus. Beginning in verse 1, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, I just want to give you the context. And it happened that while, the, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and it goes on to talk about how he uh, baptized those disciples. In verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and proclaiming or persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily, daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In fact, when there is a big riot in Ephesus, um, uh, we're told that um, Paul and his teaching reached all of Asia. He's disturbed all of Asia with his teaching. So that's how, I think, um, Philemon either heard about Paul or heard the gospel. He met Paul, and Paul says later on in Philemon that, um, he was, uh, that Philemon was indebted to him because of the fact that Paul had, that he had been converted under Paul's ministry. So, um, 
And so Paul knows the church there well, and they know Paul. And so that's probably how Paul heard all of this about Philemon. And he indicates that Philemon's love and faith in Christ affected the church as well. Now, again, we have another translation difficulty. (laughs) We always have translation difficulties, and that's normal. In uh, verse 5, we read in the New American Standard, Because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now notice that. The translation, though literal, seems to indicate that Philemon has faith in the saints or toward the saints, which is really not Paul's intention. Uh, The New English translation, I think, is more clear, um, though it's less literal. Um, They translated, Because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. That makes more sense. And I think that's what the intention is. So the point Paul is making is that faith in Jesus Christ leads to faithfulness. John, I'm terribly myself. The, the point Paul is making is that faith in Jesus leads to faithfulness. That faithfulness to Jesus results in love for all the saints. In other words... Faith is a never a dead faith. I recently viewed a clip produced by an African pastor. In it he said, we don't need your money. We need help with discipleship. Our people need to be discipled. Well, that's true for them, but it's true for the American Christians as well. In fact, Kevin Van Hooser has just brought out a book that's, uh, well, I don't know how recent it was, but it's called Hearers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine. You see, we have to understand it is never enough to merely profess the faith. We must also practice the faith. That's why James says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2.17 We are never saved by our works, but God has saved us by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto or for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what are those works? Well, I can think of one place in Scripture where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit that I produce. It's the fruit the Spirit produces in me as I, yes, I yield myself to Him, but it's the Spirit who produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. It's the works that God has made for us. Jesus' words to the disciples on the night of his arrest arrest was, If you love me, you will keep my word. Well, then we move on to the second point, and that is content. The content of Paul's prayer. Notice Paul says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. The word fellowship is properly translated, but it's confusing. The word also means partnership. It means share as well. In fact, uh, if you go to the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies, when they, when they uh, support a missionary, they say they are having fellowship with that person because they're sharing something with him. Um, Paul uses that same word in verse 17, which is translated there, partnership. Partnership. 
So I believe he most likely had the, that meaning in mind. As one commentator explains the idea, Philemon's fellowship in the faith, the church's mutual participation in Christ and believing, that's what it is. It's a partnership in the ministry of faith. The focus is on the church's life and Philemon's participation in that life. We might call it the life of the body. From Philemon 3, we know that Philemon had a church, or a church group anyway, that met in his house. So he was a hospitable man. Not only would they meet and pray in his home, he would most likely be the one to provide for the food and whatever else was needed for the church to meet because he was evidently a, a wealthy patron and that's why he had slaves. What many do not know is that the church did not only meet once a week. That's one of our struggles. I think it's a struggle in, in American churches. There's a focus on Sunday morning and preaching, right? Well, some churches sing a gazillion songs, but the focus is really on singing and preaching. Singing and preaching. And uh, that's the center of everything. It's what you learn. It's what, it's what your head is filled with. That's what's important. And it's true, it is important. But it's not all that is important. The church used to, in the early years, meet regularly for the reading of the Word of God. There's evidence of that. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So you have a reader and you have hearers. And he's not reading a few verses and then expositing on them. He is reading the whole enchilada, right? Wow. He's reading everything. And so they would get together and they would read. They would have a reader and people would listen. That didn't mean that, that, that wasn't done because everybody was illiterate. And that's kind of a, the way people look at things now. They, they say, well, people back in those times, they were illiterate. No. They weren't. I'll agree that, liter um, that, that literacy was, was low. But it's not the case that, that illiteracy was just rampant. There were people who could read. In fact, they found shards of, look like children practicing their writing. You know, the Jews had readers. The rabbis could read. They were intelligent people. Now, granted, not everybody had that. But not everybody was, was illiterate either. Why did they get together? Well, first of all, they couldn't afford one of these. You couldn't just go out and buy a Bible like we can. You know, so you would have one, or maybe somebody would have, a, somebody would have one, and they would read from that book. And the early church did develop the... They were the ones who practiced the use of a book, the codex. That was a practice of the church. They developed, they moved in that direction of the codex and they got away from the scroll. Well, you couldn't afford, you couldn't afford a scroll, you couldn't afford a, a codex, so what do you do? You gather together to hear the word of God read. It's read out loud. Now, think of this. When um, Ezra and Nehemiah come back to Jerusalem, what is one of the things they do? They stand in the square, 
They set up a podium and Ezra reads from the law and other people explain the translation because it was written in a language that they weren't familiar with. So they, it wasn't that they didn't know what was being read. It's that they had to have their understanding corrected. You move from Aramaic to Hebrew and it's different. So, yeah, they had people there who, who could translate it or make them understand it. But they read, what, all day? And what did they do? Well, they were reading. Everybody just stood there. Um, the reading, just the reading of the Scripture is so important. That's why we read, we try to read more than just a few verses every week. We read, we, in fact, I try to read a whole chapter in the Old Testament, a whole chapter in the New Testament, because it's important to have the Word of God read aloud without my you know without my saying anything the holy spirit works through his word now the holy spirit will work through me too but the word of god is what changes us and uh, preaching is as long as it's consistent with the word of god the confession says that it is the word my preaching is the word of god as long as i'm preaching what the text says and not going beyond that well I don't believe I've gone beyond that uh, this morning. I, don't, I try not to go beyond that at all. But um, the importance of hearing the Word of God read. Um, I love listening to Alexander Scorby. You know, I just listen to him over and over and over again because he's, a, he's, a, he's the best reader I've ever heard. Um, compared to the modern day readers, I just, they, I don't, I can't, I just can't, listen to the modern readers, but Scorby, I could listen to, well I do, listen to him for hours. And he just reads the scripture. And sometimes as I'm listening to that, I think, wow, I didn't hear that before. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't paying attention to that before. And so I think it's important for us to understand that. Now, people are going to argue, well, that was then, this is now. now. We live in a literate culture and have no need to practice this. Well, I agree that we live in somewhat of a literate culture. Um, I agree that we don't necessarily need someone to read to us. However, um, that's really not the point, is it? You see, when the book, when the Word of God is being read, it's not just that it's being read to me. It's being read to all of us. In other words... It's a communal activity. We are together. And I think that's what's important. Well, as it is with prayer, so it is with gathering as the church. God has been set on the back burner of our lives, folks. He really has. Yes, He's important to us as long as He doesn't interfere with our lifestyle. Think about how God accommodated us in sending Christ. Do we accommodate our lives to Him? That's a question that I struggle with myself. The partnership of faith is to become effective through the knowledge of every good. Paul doesn't say every good thing. The word thing is put in there because it's one of those empty words. You know when you don't have a word to use for what you want to say, you say thing, right? i got to get 
I got to I got to go get something, or I got to do this thing. I use it all the time, thing. But it, what does it mean? So Paul doesn't say every good thing. What he says is every good, every good. It's the idea is that it's every good that is in Christ. Whatever good there is, is in Christ. And it comes to us by way of God's blessing. It's the good that's in Christ and for Christ, for His sake. Uh, think of what Paul said to the Philippians. You want to think about what is good? Well, whatever things are true, there we go with the word things again, Whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on those things that have just been mentioned. That's the good. Fill your mind with and actions with those kinds of truths. What's true, what's good, what's pure, what's holy, what's good for other people. And do it all because the Lord wants it done. And do it for His sake. Don't do for others for any other reason than for the sake of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's going to help him. If Daniel gets sick and he needs help and we, we come to his aid, well, that's good. We're doing it for him. But we're doing it because we want to honor Christ in taking care of our brother. That's the way that it should be. And that's what I think Paul has in mind. And that brings us to the last point to consider. And that is, explanation. You see there that Paul says, um, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now the word for may be understood in a variety of ways. And many times it introduces a reason or a cause. For this reason, this is the reason I'm doing it. However, it also serves to introduce an explanation, which is what I believe Paul is doing here. He's just saying, you know, I want to tell you, let me explain. I have derived much joy and comfort from you. Now he gives a reason. Why has, why has he derived much joy and comfort from Philemon? Well, he tells him. Because Philemon has... Um, because the hearts of all the saints have been refreshed through you. So as Paul's writing, it's like he's saying, okay, um, I, pray, I pray that uh, your faith uh, may become effective through the full knowledge of every good that is in Christ. You know, let me tell you about this good. I, I have derived so much joy and comfort from your love. Let me explain how that how that has been. It has been because my brother, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. They've been refreshed. Philemon's love for the people of God led to their refreshment. Philemon was no mere professor of the faith. He also practiced the faith. That's something that I have to learn. It's not just my profession that counts for anything. It counts, to be sure. 
But if it's not accompanied with practice, then what I profess means nothing. People will just laugh at me and say, oh yeah, right, there you go. There's another, there's another hypocrite in the church. Well, honestly, I do struggle with hypocrisy. I don't know anybody that doesn't, not even anybody in the world who isn't a Christian doesn't struggle with hypocrisy. Just watch the news. It's all over. So, yes, we struggle with it, but are we, or do we have the power to do something about that? Do we have the power to change? And the answer is yes, because we have the Holy Spirit. So we too can be a joy and a comfort to the church by refreshing them. What does it even mean to refresh someone? Well, if you'll remember, in the law of God, Exodus 23.12, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be, guess what? Refreshed. So how can we be how can we be an avenue of refreshment for one another in church? And how was Philemon an avenue of refreshment uh, for those in, in the church that met in his house? Well, one way I think it that it really fleshed itself out was when Philemon opened his home to have the church meet there. That's one way. I mean, and who knows what that was? Um, some people say that the church of Colossae met in Philemon's home. Well, maybe that's true. Well, I don't know. Um, some people say that it might have been a group of Christians uh, in Colossae that met in Philemon's home, so they were like a, a sister church. But they were all one church. And there was no concept of, you know, this church and that church. We were all one church. The church met. So it could be that that's what it was. But the point is this. The purpose of the Sabbath, if that's true, to grant rest and refreshment to those around us, then what are we doing in light of that idea of for ourselves? Am I a refreshment to you? Do I offer you refreshment? Um, is it, you know, it can't be that my preaching offers you refreshment. Sometimes it probably offers something else. But, I mean, it may be refreshing, but um, is that what Paul is saying? I think he's talking about something um, that in, may include the, the preaching and all that because the church met in Philemon's house. But it goes beyond that. It includes other things. Oh, there I go with the word things again. It, inclu it includes other, um, other avenues of refreshment. You know, providing a meal, providing some money where it's needed, providing, providing encouragement. You know, when someone's discouraged. Someone today was discouraged in our congregation. Well, how can we, how can we minister to our sister's um, um, uh, her uh, to encourage her in her struggle. Well, we have to think about that, and that's how we can bring some refreshment to those in our congregation.
how is Philemon now going to offer that refreshment? Well, again, Paul really is laying the foundation, isn't he? Paul is about to lead the next section. Paul is going to be asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back. Mm -hmm. And not just as a slave, as brother. Because you see, the focus of the book of Philemon is how that the gospel changes. Um, it, it's a radical change of relationship. You see, forgiveness is a radical change. Forgiveness is not easy to give. It's really not. You have to die to yourself to forgive. To receive someone back as though they hadn't done anything to you before when they've already offended you, you think that that's not easy. It's really not. So how does it come about? It comes about through the grace of God working through us. But that brings about refreshment. What Think now just for a moment. Um, they're not sure about Philemon. They're not sure about Onesimus. I'll bring the, I'll talk about this more next time. But they're not sure about Onesimus. Why did he find himself with Paul in prison? Was Paul in Rome, which is a long ways away, or was Paul in Ephesus, which there's no record of in 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 the Scripture except for one verse that hints at it? Um, was Paul in Caesarea? You know, that's a real. Viability. Paul was in Caesarea waiting trial before Herod, before he's sent to Rome. That may be where he was. I don't know. But how did Onesimus end up with Paul? Well, we have to think about that. You know, it could be one, one possibility, though I'm not sure how good it is. One possibility is that Philemon sent Onesimus to labor, to see to Paul's needs while he's in prison. That's that's one option. I'm not sure it's the the right one, but it's one option. You got to at least think about it. I'll present that. I'll explain that a little more next time. Um, it could be the other option is that that if I, that uh, Onesimus was uh, not a very good servant and uh, not a very good slave, and he. Uh, he uh, took off and absconded with some of Philemon's goods. You know, that's usually the way people interpret it. Even in the early church, they adore it. That's how he, he interpreted it. You know, Onesimus ran off and absconded some of Philemon's goods. Um, if Philemon did run away and he was caught by the authorities or by anybody, actually, anybody who found a slave... Uh, who has run away, had the obligation to turn him into the authorities. And if you didn't turn him into the authorities, you could be in trouble. So it could be that uh, Onesimus ran away, and he was caught, and by God's providence, you know, nobody, they don't mention God's providence in, in uh, I haven't found that in the commentators yet. He just happened to find his way with Paul. Well, maybe in God's providence, Onesimus ran off to Rome, Ephesus, or Caesarea, and he was caught. And so the authorities said, "Okay, you're going to the Huskow," and they put him in. They put him in prison. And guess who he's next to? The Apostle Paul. That could be. So those are all kind of options that we have. But now, Paul is going to ask Philemon to do something that is not easy to do. He's going to ask him to receive his slave back. He's not. He's He's asking, he says, if, if Onesimus, I'm going to see this, 
Onesimus owes him anything, Paul will take care of it. Okay? You receive him back, you receive him back, but not just as a slave, as more than a slave, a brother in Christ. Uh-oh. See, that's hard. And so Paul really is kind of setting things up. He's telling Philemon, you know, I know of your great love for all the saints in the church and meets in your house and for all the other saints in the city of Colossae. I know you're a, you're a loving man. You offer the saints refreshment and, and this is really good. And, um, and uh, so he recognizes that. And he's, he's telling him he wants the relationship that he has with the other believers to be transformed. Or he wants, his, he wants his relationship with the other believers to be the same as the relationship he will have with Onesimus. So, that's something. Well, we have to ask ourselves, right? Well, what am I known for in, in the church? What do people know me for? Well, there's not too many. But um, what do you guys know me for? Am I a loving person? Am I, am I overbearing uh, whatever? Um, am I known for my love for all the saints? Am I known for that? Are you? Do you do all things in faith? I mean, by faith, you're believing in Christ. You're trying to keep His Word, but you're doing it for His sake. Are you doing that? Am I? These are questions we need to think about as we go through Philemon because it's a very challenging... It's a, it's a, it's a powerful challenge to all of us as we think about what is going to take place in the next section when Paul asks Philemon to receive back a slave, to change the relationship and see him no more as a slave. He doesn't ask him to, to, um, to um, offer him manumission. That happened in the Romans world, but Roman world, it did. Um, but Paul's not asking for that. He's not asking for abolition. Paul is saying, you know, receive him back as a slave, but more than a slave, more than that. Receiving back as a brother in Christ. Will Philemon do that? That's the question. Would we? That's the question. So then we have considered Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, its content, and its explanation. May we take what he says to heart that we may learn from Paul, from Philemon, who learned about Christ. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Philemon is a beautiful book, but it's also a challenging book. It challenges all of us. It challenges me, I know. It's hard to be quick to forgive. It really is. It's so much easier to hold back and to say, um, you know, I forgive you, but. I hear that all the time. I forgive you, but. And I understand there has to be there has to be a time. It doesn't just happen just immediately. Because we're not you. We're not God. We, you know, we, can't, we, we can't do this. But we need to learn to be quick to forgive. 
as much as you give us the grace to do. Because in Christ, that's what you've done for us. Father, help us to be a refreshment to the people of God. Help us to be a people who are thankful and who pray without ceasing. We ask you this in Christ's name. Amen.